0: Yeah, hey, how's it going y'all? Oh yeah, that's good, man. Zawahiri is supporting the opposition in Syria.
1: Are we supporting al-Qaeda in Syria? Hamas is now supporting the opposition. Are we supporting Hamas in Syria? So I think, Wyatt, you know, despite the great pleas that we hear from those people who are being ruthlessly assaulted by Assad, If you're a military planner or if you're a secretary of state and you're trying to figure out do you have the
0: elements of an opposition that is actually viable, we don't see that. Well, I got that right. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Sorry, I just felt like uh, sneezing a couple of times and playing some audio to cover for it. These things happen. Sometimes the show starts with sneezes. Well, I know I should stop holding pepper under my nose at the start of the show. Sound advice. I'll take it from now on. All right. So anyway, hi. I'm Scott Horton. This is my show, the Scott Horton Show. And yeah, basically the thing is, I talk about how much I hate the government. And I interview journalists about horrible, stupid, terrible, crazy things about the government so that you will hate them too. That's what it's about. Cool. I think you'll like it. Today on the show, Najem Iftikhar Hader. He's a professor at a college somewhere. I don't know, man. Sam Hussein, he sent him out in the press release thing this morning. The Institute for Public Accuracy. And what he's going to do is he's going to debunk this crap about, oh, yeah, the Sunni and the Shia, they're always killing each other over who's the Sunni and who's the Shia. And it's always been that way. In fact, we had a guest yesterday on the show refer to those cliches, and I didn't bother interrupting to correct him because he had substantive and original things to say that it was, wasn't was really worth diverting off onto what amounted to a tangent. It wasn't like that was the basis of his entire, you know, series of statements or anything, so I let it slide. But anyway, we're going to have that corrected today, um, and we're going to find out about the Sunni-Shia civil war that's raging across the entire Middle East, and uh, what's behind it. Najem Iftikhar Um And then guess what else? Dan McAdams is going to be here. Damn McAdams, he is the, uh, I guess, director, the boss, the title of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. Good old Damn McAdams. And he's going to be here to point his finger and make fun of Jonah Goldberg. I know it's easy pickings, but he does deserve it. And I think maybe we don't pick on him enough. Jonah Goldberg, what a ridiculous human. Anyway, um, so that's going to be fun. You can find Daniel Larison, I mean, uh, Daniel McAdams. I'm sorry, I was looking at Daniel Larison's name while I was saying <laughs> Daniel McAdams. Uh, Daniel McAdams, you can find his article today on antiwar.com. It's pretty funny. Pretty funny. Okay, coming up, those things. All right. Now, uh, check this out. Uh, Gary Johnson. Now, you know, I don't know what it is with this guy, man. I think he's some kind of kook. And, you know, and I'm sorry for, you know, you just anti-war people who aren't necessarily libertarians or interested in libertarian stuff. This is only interesting to libertarians. He's that kind of libertarian who isn't really a libertarian, doesn't really understand it, isn't really grounded in it. But he's sort of the cliche, the Drew Carey cliche, the goddamned Bill Maher cliche of oh Republican who smokes pot. Right? Somebody gets high or is gay but is not a socialist. That's a libertarian in the dumbest dumbed down sense. And so that's where Gary Johnson fits in, right? Is he's a Republican who, you know, is better than most Republicans on some things, kind of guy. Anyway, so he's running for the, uh, Libertarian Party nomination this time. And here's how he's stepping up his game, uh, which he did last time, right? Yeah. Uh, and here's how he's stepping up his game. He wants to pass a national law as, as president. He wants to pass a law to ban the ba- the wearing of burkas in the United States. Now, where does he even get that from? Now, what comment section is he even copying that from? And he says, well, yeah, because, you know, what if they got a bruise under there and you can't see it? Well, let's ban shirts then. What is he talking about? And what authority does he think he has or could possibly have? And what about the nuns? I mean, um in fact, Muslim women in America and in Austin, I see Muslim women who have the full black get up with the face veil, but that still isn't a burqa, right? A burqa is the the one piece jumpsuit. Um <laughs> uh, but so, and then where does he think he's drawing the line and, and why am I even talking about this? I just, the guy is a ridiculous person. You know, I am a Bill Hicksian. I do think that people should eat acid or mushrooms or whatever and figure out there's more to your brain than you thought. And you don't necessarily agree with all the other things that you used to think you thought all the time and whatever. And like, eh, that's good. But I think some people do too much drugs and they become stupid. That's what Gary Johnson seems like to me. Like, maybe, maybe, uh, ate too much acid and got the wrong idea. Remember his interview? Was it with Reason Magazine? Uh, four years ago? Or, no, it wasn't. It was like Politico or something, right? It was Politico or The Daily Call or one of the, one of the other of those. Where he goes, oh, yeah, we ought to go and hunt Coney 2012, and we ought to do this and that. I can't remember the rest of them. But the entire interview, he was all over the freaking place for this war, but against that one, when this one is completely unnecessary, and that one at least has a pretend argument behind it and whatever. And he's just making no sense whatsoever. So I guess he maybe is a good fit for the Libertarian Party, but that's a tragedy. You know? Most Americans, if they, if there's such a thing as libertarians, they would expect that we're in a libertarian party. That's, and if there's, if there is a libertarian party, then that must be where the libertarians are. In fact, the vast majority of the libertarian movement exists wholly outside the libertarian party and has nothing to do with it. I mean, most of us are anarchists and don't believe in voting and that kind of thing. And those of us who think that the libertarian party can be a very important vehicle for carrying our message forward in a Harry Brownian sort of a fashion, figure, pff, why bother? The thing is run by a bunch of ridiculous idiots, a bunch of Gary Johnsons and Wayne Allen roots and people who, because they're good at running things like parties, are, they're terrible at things like reading and knowing what the hell they're talking about or even what's important. I've told this story before. The first day I ever interviewed Ron Paul in May of 2004 at the Libertarian Party Convention in Atlanta, that same day, I got into a fight with Judge Jim Gray at the little party thingamajig uh, in some hotel room. Oh, we can't leave now. We can't leave the Iraq War now. The violence will get worse. And I'm saying, not only are you completely wrong, but you are ruining the Libertarian Party's chance to be the greatest force against the war. To, one, end the war, and two, benefit Libertarianism by taking such a hardcore stand. Oh, can't leave now, no, no, no. Bunch of Gary Johnson crap. Worthless. The LP is just worthless at this point. I mean, what does this clown even think he's talking about? Why did I just waste five whole minutes on it? Hey, i Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the right to keep and bear arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today.
2: Don't you get sick of the Israel lobby trying to get us into more wars in the Middle East or always abusing Palestinians with your tax dollars? It once seemed like the lobby would always have full spectrum dominance on the foreign policy discussion in D.C. But those days are over. The Council for the National Interest is the America lobby standing up and pushing back against the Israel lobby's undue influence on Capitol Hill. Go show some support at councilforthenationalinterest dot org. That's councilforthenationalinterestorg dot org. All
0: right, so welcome back. All right, so listen, uh, I'm sorry to do this because uh, there's a bunch of important news to cover, but I got to stop to say that you guys got to shop advertisers on this show. More. For example, if you like reading books, then you need to buy and read *The War State*. Mm-hmm. Um, if you need work, you want to own your own business, you ought to seriously consider. And I mean this not just because the guy pays me money, but really. Uh, consider Master Samurai Tech. He'll teach you how to repair all the newest fangled high tech, major appliances, and teach you how to open and run your own business once you've got the skills. Uh, Huge opening in the market right there. The old technicians don't have the skills for this, and they don't seem to be retraining too much. Huge new market right there. MastersamuraiTech.com Obviously, this doesn't apply uh to many of you but if you are an industrial contractor of some kind and particularly if you're doing you know you need engineering work done on uh well go and check out all the list of all the great stuff that the guy does it's uh, christopher smith at npvengineering.com npvengineering.com and he does you know all the heat exchangers and chemical facilities and all this you're building the factory. I know not all of you are building a factory. But if you're building a factory, this is your guy. And if you want him to keep supporting this show, then, yeah, he's the guy that you ought to choose. <laughs> or else you won't have a show to listen to no more, you show listeners. Um, uh, same thing for the Council for the National Interest and the Future Freedom Foundation. Uh, these two have supported the show. Uh, since I got laid off from Antiwar.com, and I'm I am the editor of Antiwar.com, the opinion editor, but um, I'm not. I don't really work there. <laughs> I'm only kind of a uh, con- subcontractor, sort of a situation, uh, not like it used to be. Uh, believe me, um, not that I was ever making very much, but uh, uh, the Council for the National Interest, that's Phil Giraldi's group, and uh, the Future Freedom Foundation. That's uh Jacob Hornberger's group. They both have supported this show and both could use your support. And both, hey, they both run institutions that deserve your support in their own right, big time, as you well know. Um, and then check this out. I'll go ahead and say, I'm kind of disappointed that my advertisements for this book haven't worked out. There's this great book. Um And, of course, I don't have in front of me. i got to click a couple of things to get there. There's this great book by this guy, David Hathaway. He's a Rockwell.com writer. A former DEA cop. That's, I guess, not to his credit, except that it makes it kind of ironic and cool that he now is a hardcore Austrian school libertarian. If you are an Austrian school libertarian, you got to have a position on immigration one way or the other. And here, this guy is either going to make your argument bulletproof or he's going to destroy you. Either way... You should want the help or the challenge. The book is Immigration, Individual versus National Borders. And it's David Hathaway saying to the Austrian school libertarians who favor immigration restrictions that, ah, uh, uh, not so fast in invoking Misesian praxeological theory in order to make your claims because I don't quite see it that way. The introduction's written by me. The blurb on the back of the book is written by the heroic Will Grigg. In other words, Will Grigg says read it, so that's pretty damn good. And it's great. It's really good, man. It's very well written. There's not a single typo in the rough draft that I read. Not one. Um, and, and I just don't mean typo-wise, but I mean the prose is... It's good. It's a great read. And he doesn't attack Rockwell and Hoppa and whoever by name. He just goes through the intellectual arguments, and he doesn't attack straw man arguments either. He he goes through the, the Hoppian arguments for immigration restrictions and says not so fast, and I think makes a great set of arguments. and think it's really good. Immigration, individual versus national borders. This may or may not be interesting to people who aren't Austrian school libertarians, but then again, if you're a liberal or a conservative and you're interested in what Austrian school libertarians are about, maybe it would be. So anyway, go and check it out. It's David Hathaway. It's at Amazon.com. It's $3.60 for the paperback, guys. $3.60 for the paperback. Immigration, individual versus national borders. This extremely important debate within the libertarian movement. Uh, this is a huge uh, addition to that debate. So come on. Come on. And then uh, also, of course, Liberty.me, the great libertarian Facebook, right? That's what it is, the libertarian uh, thing. And, and um, you know, I, I take a look at it all the time. There are great articles on there all the time. There's a great community of libertarians there at Liberty.me. There really is. I dig it, man. I read great stuff on there all the time. I was just posting an article about what a scumbag Gary Johnson is from Liberty.me this morning. Liberty.me, uh, it's five bucks a month. No ads. And no, you know, Facebook preying on you through all their algorithms and data mining your entire life and whatever and selling you to the highest bidder. None of that. Just straight, legit, libertarian debate. It's funny. Occasionally I see on there people go, oh, yeah, well, what about this? And the other guy goes, dude, no, 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 no. I'm a libertarian, too. All I'm saying is this. And they go, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I forgot that I wasn't on Facebook for a second. We all know what each other are talking about here. We don't have to go back to first definitions. Um, and then Robertson Roberts Brokerage Inc., man. Uh, obviously, if you guys are libertarians, if you guys know a thing about trying to protect your wealth, you know that you need at least some significant portion of your savings and precious metals. That's just a fact. You don't have to be a libertarian at all. You could be a Democrat and know that you better have what, 10, 15, 20% of whatever your savings are in precious metals uh, to protect as a hedge against inflation. That's it. Um, I don't know nothing about speculating, and I'm not encouraging people to speculate. I'm talking about, I mean, and you can. What the hell? I'm not saying don't, but I'm just saying that's not what this is. This is buy metal because it's smart to do, always. I mean, except at the very top of a bubble, but I'm fairly certain we're not at the very top of a metals bubble right now. Uh, if you know anything about it, I think you'd agree. We've had major corrections just in the last year. So, Roberts and Roberts Brokerage Inc. It's R R B I. dot co. Remember R B I from playing baseball when you were kid? R R B I. dot co. And they have uh, very low charges. You know, extremely cheap uh, uh, surcharges. Where they make their money off of your transactions, very little. They're best deal in town, and they've been around for thirty-something years, and they're absolutely reliable and great. And they support not just this show, but uh, also this station, this this network, the Libertarian. Uh, pardon me, the Liberty Radio Network, LRN.FM. FM. They're big supporters um, uh, of Antiwar.com as well, and so show your support there. And and Liberty stickers, of course. Which uh, I invented and sold to Rick. And the bumpersticker.com. Any of you guys have companies, you need stickers, you have a band, you need stickers, check out the bumpersticker.com. Great quality, great prices, the bumpersticker.com. Hey, all Scott here. Ever wanted to help support the show and own silver at the same time? Well, a friend of mine, libertarian activist Arlo Pignatti, has invented the alternative currency with the most promise of them all QR Silver Commodity Discs. The first ever QR code, one ounce silver pieces. Just scan the back of one with your phone and get the instant spot price. They're perfect for saving or spending at the market. And anyone who donates $100 or more to The Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org slash donate gets one. That's scotthorton.org slash donate. And if you'd like to learn and order more, send them a message at commoditydiscs.com or check them out on Facebook at slash commoditydiscs. And thanks. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism vs. Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism vs. Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, guys, welcome back. Hey, there's a great group of folk that hang out in the chat room every day. You could be one of them. ScottHorton.org slash chat. Plain old browser window. That's all you need is a fake name and a caption. You're in there. Join up, hang out in the chat room during the live show here. Uh, yeah. Also, uh, you could advertise. On this show, if you just go to uh, scotthorton.org slash donate, it'll tell you, there's my email address. I'll tell you, scottscotthorton.org. Email me and ask me about it, and I will answer that, uh yeah, I don't charge very much, dude. I'm sure we can work it out. And then maybe we can work it out. Help advertise on this show, keep it going for another year. You know, if you think I should. I guess I started The Daily Show... Um Right around this time, 2007, is when I finally got going daily. I was still doing the Chaos Report once a week, uh, all through 2006, and had the inner weekend interview show in 2004 and five. But the, uh, yeah, it's been since 2007, so nine years now of doing the daily anti war radio show here for you. So, if you like that, give me money. The best way to give me money is to just hand me giant stacks of cash. The second best way is, uh, to advertise on the show. And then hopefully I'll try to get people to patronize the thing that you're doing. Good or service. You know, if I can, I'd try to do that for you. There. Um, yeah. Uh, or you can just, you know, send me bitcoins. There's a bitcoin address on there too. Uh, sign up for monthly donations, whatever you want. So many like this show. I'm like that museum on The Simpsons where they say, yeah, no, it's a voluntary, you know, donation at the door. And Homer's like, well, you don't have to pay. and just come right in. Well, what sucker's going to pay when it's free? <laughs> I know. It's a good question, Homer. It really is. I've been trying to answer that. I haven't come up with the right business model yet, apparently. I keep thinking I need to, I don't know sign up for master samurai tech learn how to fix refrigerators uh yeah hey join in the chat room Scott not slash chat now on with the news I uh, almost don't know where to begin uh France attacked anniversary of Charlie Hebdo and um, some guy had a butcher knife they say and they shot him the cops shot him and they said he had an Isis flag on him and whatever and who knows you know I know. For the false flagists among you, everything is always a false flag. For me, I have my own confirmation bias, uh, which is that I've been warning for years. What year is it again? January 2016. I've been warning for five years. Well, almost four and three quarters or something. Against America's intervention in the war in Syria. And how they are creating a new, extra, perhaps worse, Jihad Academy. Creating the space for the rise, the re-rise of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And closer, further and further west. They keep bringing the front between the Bin Ladenites and Western civilization. Now, uh, you know, as though bringing them from Afghanistan into Western Iraq wasn't enough, now they gotta bring them into Syria as well. And, and unlike in the Iraq War, which, it's interesting to me, man, some academic ought to go back and figure out what exactly is the difference. I think there are a few that I can come up with off the top of my head, but, uh, when it comes to the Syria War, We've had thousands of Europeans go and to fight on the side of the Jihad. On the side of the Al-Nusra Front and the Islamic State against Assad and the secular Baathist fascist regime there. And I think part of that is because it's a generation of people who grew up during the Iraq War when they were little kids. And now they're that age. Whereas anybody who was that age at the time of the Iraq War, they weren't going to go. And Europeans are going to go and fight in Sunniistan or whatever but we've had enough time for the, the narrative to be set in the minds of the jihadists. And, you know, for all of my condemnation of um, the American, Saudi, Israeli, Turkish, Qatari, uh, Zawahiri, side, Baghdadi side in this war, uh, you never hear me say nice things about Assad or his regime. Uh, I will only point out, The closest thing to that is you'll hear me point out the very tough but very realistic reasons why his regime is supported, not Assad as a personality necessarily, but why the Syrian state is supported even by large numbers, large pluralities, if not majorities of the Sunni population of Syria. And that is because when the state falls, everybody else's life is up for grabs. Convert or die is and, you know, they try to spin Al-Nusra and Arar al-Sham and these others as, uh, you know, these so-called mythical moderates. But they behead their enemies too. the Al-Nusra front right in the middle of their rebranding campaign, uh, which is just Al-Qaeda. You know, Galani still is sworn loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri. So are his men. In the middle of their rebranding campaign, they beheaded, or, well, at least they murdered. I forget if they beheaded them or not. But they murdered 20 Druze who refused to convert. Um, And this is the future that uh, people are fighting against. You know, you think uh, the Syrian war is bad now. Uh, Just imagine if Damascus fell, the Syrian army fell and all the Druze, all the Shiites, all the Alawites, all the different Marianite, Chaldean, and Assyrian Christians, and everybody else, all their lives up for grab, or they could swim. And, uh, if they're lucky, they can buy a fake life jacket. Who's in the fake life jacket business? Jesus. Maybe I am for crucifixion after all. let me sell you a fake life jacket for your kid, refugee. Um, God damn. Some people are people. Although that is just a government accusation. I should presume the accused innocent in that case. Uh, Who knows whether uh, the accusation's right or not. Maybe they're just competing with the wrong life jacket salesman. Anyway... Goddamn disaster. Um Oh, yeah, but so back to my warning and my confirmation bias. For years, I've been warning that, hey, man, Europeans are going to go fight in Syria. And guess what? Some of them are going to come home. And now when it came to uh, the Charlie Hebdo attack, one or two of those guys had gone to Syria. And one or the other had gone to Yemen as well. Now, in the most recent France attack, apparently, well, let's see, I'm trying to remember whether they had supposedly gone to Syria or not. I think the one of them had, they said, right? Uh, but they're certainly radicalized by that entire war and have signed up for the war on the jihadist side. And it's just a matter of time. That's all it is. It's a function of continuing this horrific and bogus and contradictory in so many ways so-called terror war this whole time. Just keep making more of them. And, you know, I don't know. The fact that human adults are willing to buy. So I guess we just got to kill more of them as an argument at this point to me is, you know, I don't know what's the term for it. It's not disappointing or disheartening. It's both of those things, but that doesn't capture it. I just I want to headbutt all of Western civilization. (laughs) You know, you seriously can't remember just the last 20 years you were alive during them the fuck are we even talking about here? You know? Stupid idiot. Western civilization. War's heating back up in Iraq, too, man. Uh, if you read antiwar.com slash updates, Margaret Griffiths, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people killed just in the last couple of days as uh, the Islamic State flees Ramadi and lands in Haditha.
2: Hey,
0: I'll guess what? You can now order transcripts of any interview I've done for the incredibly reasonable price of two and a half bucks each. Listen, finding a good transcriptionist is near impossible, but I've got one now. Just go to scotwharton.org slash transcripts, enter the name and date of the interview you want written up, click the PayPal button, and I'll have it in your email in 72 hours max. You don't need a PayPal account to do this. Man, I'm really going to have to learn how to talk more good. That's scotwharton.org slash transcripts. This part of the Scott Horton Show is sponsored by Audible.com. And right now, if you go to audibletrial.com slash Scott Horton Show, you can get your first audio book for free. Of course, I'm recommending Michael Swanson's book, The War State, The Cold War Origins of the Military Industrial Complex and the Power Elite. Maybe you've already bought The War State in paperback, but you just can't find the time to read it. Well, now you can listen while you're out marching around. Get the free audio book of The War State by Michael Swanson, produced by Listen and Think Audio at audibletrial.com slash Scott Horton Show. Hey, man. My name is Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Oh, good question in the chat room. When a country is invaded and overthrown, does it then become the property of the invader? Like, is Germany really Germanica? And Japan really Japan- American? Uh, I thought I could wing it. I didn't. Anyway, listen. Uh, no, well, actually, invading and conquering a country, and particularly, you know, attempting to annex the land, and especially move your population to it, is strictly illegal post World War II. Um, not that it always makes sense that state borders are where they are now, but you don't like it, negotiate a fix. No more wars. No more, we need some Lebensraum, and so you got to get the hell out of the way. That's been illegal. America outlawed that after World War II. Now, but there's a different kind of angle, which I think you're thinking of, which says that, well, geez, if you do invade and occupy a country, then you're... If a government invades and occupies a country, that government is then responsible for the well-being of the civilian population while they're occupying it, all other arguments notwithstanding, which is what I think perhaps you're referring to there. Um, But so in other words, no, just sitting back and allowing total lawlessness uh, the way they did in uh, after the invasion of Iraq um uh, preventing anyone else from taking the pl- taking their place as the security force at the same time that they refuse to do their job as the security force if you take my meaning um so that's what um that's what uh, stupid Colin Powell said and you know meant when he told George Bush if you break it you own it that you'll be responsible for what happens afterwards and it ain't going to be easy and of course Bush's answer was oh I don't care You're stupid. I agree with that, but anyway. Okay. Um, Hey, I got to talk about this just because, great, man, people are talking about this and they never talk about this. It was the meanest thing. This lady had such a credible story of rape at the hands of Attorney General Bill Clinton, Attorney General of Arkansas in 1978. And it was compelling. And part of what was so compelling about it was how she refused to be used by any conservative opposition to Bill Clinton in Arkansas or afterwards as part of their vendettas against him. She's just trying to get on with her life. Jeez. But then comes the whole Paula Jones lawsuit, which included perjury by herself. I don't know what you're talking about. Never happened. Leave me alone. As well as perjury by Bill Clinton. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Leave me alone. Which led to the federal prosecutor, special prosecutor, Ken Starr investigation of federal grand jury. At that point, explained Juanita Broderick, her son, who was a lawyer, told her, listen, you shouldn't have lied in that deposition, but you cannot lie to a federal grand jury. I don't care what the truth is. You have to tell it. You cannot. And she said, okay, okay, okay. So she went before the federal grand jury and she said, yeah, Bill Clinton, raped me and here's how it went. And she told the story. And... This was a big part of the reason. There were a lot of a lot of senators who said then that they voted to convict when they went in the back room and looked at the secret grand jury evidence that that didn't get a hearing in the House impeachment hearings, but that did exist in the documentation, and a big part of that was reading the evidence of Jane Doe 5, I believe it was, that she was referred to. It was one of the Jane Doe ladies. Uh with Kathleen Willie being another, I think it was, and and I don't know which others. And they read that and said, yeah, when I read about, you know, the lady talking about the way he raped her, I thought, well, whatever. Good enough for me to convict him on these other charges. <laughs> yeah, it's a Senate trial. <laughs> it doesn't really matter if Juanita Broderick's rape is one of the counts or not. Uh, but anyway, he was acquitted. And then only after he was acquitted in the Senate did NBC air the interview. She had finally, Lisa Myers had been after her and after her and after her for more than a year. And she finally said, okay, Lisa Myers, and did the interview in January of 1999, and then they didn't air it until, uh, until late February after Clinton's acquittal in the Senate. Then they aired it. And by then, nobody wanted to hear it at all. You know, he'd just been acquitted in the Senate, the entire spin, the entire stupid, again, adult population of America convinced that he was being impeached for receiving oral sex, not for committing perjury in front of a federal grand jury. That on an investigation that was open because he committed perjury in a civil deposition that was only a federal civil deposition because he had signed the law making sexual harassment a national civil rights issue. For Christ's sake. But anyway, Americans are going around scratching their head real hard going, yeah, I heard he got impeached for having a good time because, hey, who doesn't like a good BJ, right? And then, so they didn't want to hear it after he was acquitted. That was the end of that. And nobody even paid attention when she told her story and NBC finally aired it. You know, the people, the masses of society don't read the Wall Street Journal editorial page. So it was just, it was buried. Well, now guess what? Juanita Broderick, who told this extremely credible and somewhat uh, witnessed and verified a tale of rape at the hands of Bill Clinton, has a Twitter account And she tweeted the other day, yesterday, that, yeah, boy, I sure do hate seeing Hillary Clinton up there, remembering how Bill Clinton raped me and how she tried to intimidate me into silence, or I'm I'm paraphrasing. Wow, Broderick's on Twitter. I like Twitter, man. Remember in 2014 when the Israelis were slaughtering the helpless citizens of the Gaza Strip, the captives of the Gaza Strip, um, and Palestinians were tweeting out pictures of it? And the Israelis freaked never before had the Palestinians been able to tell their side of the story in real time as they're being slaughtered. And uh, it changed everything. Changed everything. So now, even if NBC doesn't want to talk about Juanita Broderick, even when they got the scoop, they want to bury their own damn scoop until they're done helping, you know, being an accomplice for the defense in the Senate trial of the president... It doesn't matter because Juanita Broderick has her own voice now that we can all hear. And this isn't going away. And you go watch her interview with Lisa Myers and you will think to yourself that I think she's probably not lying. And get this see, I'm spending way too much time on this. I'm sorry, I got so much stuff to cover. I'm blowing it. The rape allegation against Bill Clinton explained it's at Vox, which I know is stupid and horrible, but this isn't written by Matt Iglesias at least. Or, or Max Fisher. So, anyway, but what it is, is this is the most comprehensive telling of this story I've ever read in my life. And all the follow-up journalism about it and everything, I learned a bunch of things, including, get this, I had no idea this. Michael Isakoff of Newsweek writes, quote, Privately, Clinton's lawyers have conceded that Clinton may have had consensual sex with Broderick but insists that he would never force himself upon her, blah, 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 Oh, yeah? He admitted. Before it was, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, no, it was actually much more carefully phrasing that. David Kendall had said, any accusation that Bill Clinton had raped Juanita Broderick in 1978 is false. So what's he saying? It was in 77 or 79? Or he's saying her last name was Hickey at the time. She wasn't married to Mr. Broderick yet. And it was Miss Hickey, uh, uh, Mrs. Hickey that he raped? Huh? What? Uh, the Clintons and their loyally language. I love it. And if you read this Vox article, then you will see that. No, there's no solid proof, but yeah, I believe it too, dude. Absolutely, I do. And, and I don't need any of this, uh, you know, Modern PC crap about you must believe every accuser as long as it's a sex crime. That's the most ridiculous goddamn thing I've ever heard. What are you talking about? The accused are presumed innocent. Accusers, we listen to them fairly. So we have to presume they're all lying, but presume they're telling the truth at the expense of the possibility that they're not wrong. Wrong. Nobody needs stupid PC rewritten standards of what counts as knowledge and what's just belief in order to uh, take Juanita Broderick's uh, story, I think, pretty much at face value. Go read it yourself. It's at Vox.com. The rape allegation against Bill Clinton explained. This one isn't going away, man. It ain't. I'm sorry, man. I have so much other stuff to cover, but uh, next... Great interviews, Najan Iftikhar Hader, and Dan McAdams on the Scott Horton Show. Hey y'all, Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MastersamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MastersamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MastersamuraiTech.com. Hey, Al, Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. If this nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone, we are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at ScottHorton.org or TheWarState.com. All right, all welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. We're live here on the weekdays from noon to two on the Liberty Radio Network, LibertyRadioNetwork.com. Our first guest today is Najam Iftikhar Hader, and it says here he is assistant professor of religion at Bernard College of Columbia University and is currently a member of the Institute for Advanced Studies. He's the author of the book, Shia Islam, An Introduction to the Origins of the Shia. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Scott? I'm doing really good. Uh, Very happy to have you on the show here. So, uh, you have uh, an uphill uh, uh, mission here on the show today (laughs) to teach us a lot of what we don't know. But what you have going for you, at least, is that... Virtually everyone listening knows better than the common tropes that, oh, you know how they are, always killing each other over their religion and whatever. This is all George W. Bush and the Ayatollah and Osama's fault, uh, Zarqawi and Zawahiri and Mm -hmm. and the neoconservatives and the Iranians and the Bada Brigade. And everybody knows that, that they're not Mm -hmm. fighting about who believes what. They're fighting over power and land, same as everything. So we know that. Um, So... You can dispel that, but you don't have to feel like you're talking to a bunch of right wing idiots who, you know, know, know nothing but what Donald Trump told them or anything like that. But so um, I don't know whether you want to start with what's a Shia or if you want to start with the current contraps between the Saudis and the Iranians or what. But I'm just happy to sit back and listen to you.
1: Oh, well, thank you. Um, I mean, I I, I think that there are a couple of points that, that we should understand. The first is that um, that there are differences between Sunnis and Shias, and those differences are theological differences, and they go um, way back, um, they you know, go many centuries back, um, but they don't really define many of the conflicts that we see today. I mean, you can look at the entire Middle East, and you can see within each of the individual conflicts that seem to be sectarian, um, the, pol- the the power politics that, that serve to underwrite it. So, I mean, we make this assumption that Iran is connected to Syria because Syria is Shi'i and Iran is Shi'i. But in reality, Iran's support of Syria is is political and, and it's within its own national interests. And we see the same thing playing itself out in, in a place like Yemen, where, again, um, one side is seen as being supported by Iran because they're Shia and the other side is seen as being supported by the Saudis because they're not. But, I mean, all of these, in all of these conflicts, in, 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 in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, um, and throughout the Middle East, sectarianism becomes sort of a code. Um, it becomes a, an easy fallback um, on the basis of which um, we can explain what's going on in the Middle East. I mean, the thing is this. We um, like simple explanations. Um, everybody likes simple explanations. So we like to have that one lens through which we can understand everything that's going on in the Middle East. Um, And really in the world. For a long time it was communism. You know, it was the communists are out to get us, it's this, it's that. Um, And then once that threat was gone, we had to find another way to explain things. And the Middle East, what's in vogue these days is explanations that are based on sectarianism. Now, I mean, I'm happy to, to talk about each of these conflicts individually, I'm also happy to explain to you what the actual differences are between Sunni and Shi with the understanding that those explanations are just informational they're not they 're not explanatory sure,
0: yeah, actually let's do some of that because um you know of course we cover the current events all the time, and I think um, you know again the audience actually has a pretty good idea of of which side the different players are on, the, the so-called Shiite Crescent that now includes Iraq and, of course, the Saudis and their allies and that kind of thing. But, yeah, so please do, re, you know, and, and we can get back to that in the second segment, but maybe for the rest of this one you could talk a little bit more about the split and how it happens and what it means now.
1: Well, I mean, okay, the split, the split is ascribed to an event that happened at the death of the prophet where you had um, one group of people who believed that his son-in-law and cousin, Ali was the rightful successor, um, that group we think of today as the Shia, and the other group felt that um, the leadership of the community should be inherited by other members of the community, so they, they chose a different line of succession, um, and those um, individuals are today thought of as Sunni. Now, that's the history that we remember, that's the history that Sunnis and Shias project back upon um, the t- lifetime of the Prophet. Um, in reality, though, these two communities are just—they have two very uh, unique theological twists on the exact same original source materials for Islam. So the source materials for Islam, the the canon, as uh, if we if we were going to use that word, uh, the canon is the Quran and the lifetime of the Prophet. And so the question is, when you take the Quran and you take the lifetime of the prophet and you view it through, the, through one theological lens, um, then you get Shi'ism, and you view it through a different theological lens, you get Sunism. So there are real fundamental theological differences, even though both sides agree on the same canon. They agree on the same sources. Now, in reality, the way these two communities separated themselves off um, really took place about 100 to 200 years after um, these events you know, the lifetime of the prophet, when, you know, two diff- these two different theological communities began to manifest in different ways. So in places like Baghdad, in Iraq, and in um, what we think of today as Saudi Arabia, um, these two identities began to emerge. And these identities became rooted in a particular view of the past. So, you know, what we how we remember the past is impacted by how what we believe. So, I mean, if we look at biographies, for example, of Lincoln over time, we'll see that the biographies change as our belief structures change. So history is like that. It's malleable. Memory changes as your belief changes. And so once these communities of Sunni and Shia really became crystallized some centuries after Muhammad, then they began remembering their past in different ways. And, you know, that's not to say that that early history wasn't important. It's to say that how history is remembered is important. So these two communities emerge, which with very different memories of the past, and they've existed and they've coexisted in, in most of the Muslim world mm-hmm. um, for the last thousand years. Well, and there's great diversity
0: there's- within, I guess, more diversity within the Sunni movement than the Shia movement. But there's even, I guess, it's people often compare uh, the the Shia side, at least just in form, uh, to like the Catholic split versus the Protestants, where it's more like one chain of command. But that's not even really right. There there are different no. chains of authority even within Shia
1: Islam, right? Well I would I would take I would go even one step back from what in what you were saying, and there's as much diversity within Shiism as there is within Sunnism. Um the Shia that we oh, find right. in, in Turkey are quite different from the Shia that we find in Syria, the Alawite leadership is very different from the Shia we find in Lebanon and Iraq and Iran, which are I would say the majority in, in terms Yemen? of number. And in Yemen, they're completely different. I mean, these are these are groups that, that in some cases, differ more fundamentally amongst themselves than they do between, you know, themselves and Sunni groups. So the diversity is is quite, you know, it, it's it's quite extreme within both of these groups, Sunni and Shi. Um, and this idea that Shiism is closer to Catholicism is usually seen as being like a, a shorthand to help understand the fact that there are uh, religious leaders within the Shi community in Iran and Iraq, you know, the Twelvers, as they're called, um, that, that exert a greater authority, that hold a greater authority than um, anything you would find within Sunni Islam. But even that idea of, of hierarchical leadership um, by religious scholars only really goes back to the end of the 19th century. So, I mean, I, I think every time we try to draw those sort of parallels that, you know, with Christianity, we fail. I mean, we fail to understand what's what's actually happening here. So there's a, a, an extreme diversity, both within Shiism and within Sinism. Um And I guess on some level you could say that contemporary Twelver Shiism, that's the Shiism that um, is predominant in the world today. These are the Shia who are in Iran and Iraq and Lebanon. Um, many of these Shi'a communities have hierarchical leadership. So in that way, they're closer to uh, Catholicism. But I think that that comparison itself is, is highly problematic.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, listen, we're about to have to stop and take this break. It, it'd be nice if I timed one of these well for a change. So <laughs> we'll stop here. But when we get back, I want to ask you all about the Wahhabis and the Salafis and, the, uh, you know, how much dominance they have and what those terms really mean and, And, of course, again, around here, we all know better than to think that this is the cause of terrorism, although it does seem to be the identity of those behind the terrorism. So uh, we got to get into some of that, too. It's Najam Iftikhar Haider, assistant professor of religion at Bernard College at Columbia University. We'll be right back, y'all. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. Hey I'll Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. Talking with Najam Iftikar Hayter. He's assistant professor of religion at Bernard College at Columbia University. And he's the author of Shia Islam, an introduction. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I messed this up. These are two separate books. Pardon me. Shia Islam, an introduction and the origins of the Shia and Actually, is it worth explaining the difference between the Shia and the Shi'i? You, you, you use them to describe the same group of people, I think, right?
1: Uh, Shi'i is usually the adjective. Shia is the noun.
0: Oh, I see. Boy, do I have a lot to learn. I just hear Shiites and Shi'i. I never heard the Shi'i at all before, and we're only decade and a half into this thing. Uh, <laughs> I haven't learned nothing yet. Um, all right. Well, so, uh, yeah, now we got to talk about the Sunni side of this war here, the, the Saudi side of the war. Um, and uh, of course could you please you know what the hype is please differentiate for us the difference between the hype and the truth about the wahhabis the salafis the takfiris and and what all that stuff means and how dominant they are inside sunni islam and uh and uh, whether they're all going to come and chop our heads off
1: well i'll say this that um well first of all i'll, I'll say this that you know the wahhabis don't see themselves as sunni They see themselves as separate from Sunni. So we conflate those two terms, but they really refer to two very different things. Now, they all go back to, you know, to about the 17th century, 18th century. Um, Wahhabism was part of a movement that was called Salafism. Now, Salafi is from an Arabic word. It means, um, Salafi means like predecessors. It's like the early sources. So what the Salafi movement wanted to do in in the 17th century and the 18th century was um, go back to the original sources of Islam and and re-engage them. So they were worried that the the law schools that dominate Sunni Islam, there are four major Sunni law schools, um, that those law schools had had been corrupted by human interpretation. So they they were basically saying that let's get rid of the law schools altogether and reformulate what Islam should be in a a contemporary context. You know, what what would be appropriate for the 17th century. Um, So that was the movement. The movement was a movement to go back. It was a revivalist movement. And part of that revivalist movement, so one Salafi group, um, were the Wahhabis. Um, and the Wahhabis um, were quite uh, literalist in their reading of the sources. So they didn't really, they tried to minimize human interpretation as much as possible. So the Wahhabi movement was very much about the literal reading of the Quran and uh, accounts of the Prophet. So Salafism and Wahhabism differ in that way. Salafis are a larger group that wants to go back to the original sources and differentiates itself from Sunni Islam. Um, And Wahhabis are a Salafi group um, that took root in Saudi Arabia. Now, the Wahhabi movement became allied with the Saudi family. So there's a difference between Saudis and Wahhabis. So the Wahhabi clerical establishment in Saudi Arabia supports the Saudi family. And the Saudi family is allied with the Wahhabi clerical establishment. But they are two very different things. Um, So there's a differentiation in, in that way to bear in mind. Um, so that's the first thing to bear to, to understand. Now thakfiris, these are the groups that, you know, you see beheading people and these are groups that um, the word thakfir itself means to declare someone a non believer. Um, so these groups are, are very much identified with the idea that they take other Muslims, declare them non believers and by declaring them non believers they feel like it's um, within their rights to, to execute them for apostasy. Now, the Wahhabis are a takfiri group, but they are different in this at the same time. They have a completely different ideology. Um, so, you know, it's complicated is what I'm getting at. So, Salafism, Wahhabism, and takfiris are are three very different um, manifestations of a uh, revivalist movement um, that that work in opposition to Sunni Islam as much as some of them work within the context of Sunni Islam, but many of them separate themselves out. If you were to go to a Wahhabi cleric in Saudi Arabia and say are you Sunni, they would say no. They would say we are Muslim. We go back to the original sources. So bear this in mind. When we talk about sectarian divides between Sunni and Shi, and we put the Saudis firmly within, on, on quote-unquote, the Sunni side, um, th- that's not even a straight – I mean, that's not straightforward. That's not obvious. And that's not how the Wahhabis would classify themselves. They would differentiate themselves away from Sunnism.
0: Very interesting. Um, and first time I've ever heard anybody explain it in that way. Um, and so, OK, now, why is it that when 95 percent or more of the entire population of the Arabian Peninsula wants American combat forces off of there, it's these most Tuck Fury guys are the ones who actually commit terrorist acts against the United States over it. Islam makes them do it. They're they're radical Islam or or what makes them different from the people who don't do suicide attacks against Western targets?
1: I think what you have to bear in mind is that, um, the, that the the case of American troops on the Arabian Peninsula is is historically quite explosive. Um, and what I mean by that is that there is a, an account ascribed to the Prophet um, that says that um, only Muslims should be ara- allowed on uh, in Arabia. So there's this account that most people agree with that say non-Muslims are not permitted in Arabia. And in fact, if you're a non-Muslim, you can't go to Mecca or Medina. So this account exists. Now, at the same time, the Saudi family, um, is closely allied with the United States, and they get lots of military support from the United States. So the Saudis allow American troops onto Saudi soil, and they did so really as early as the first, uh, second Gulf War. So, you know, the, after the invasion of Kuwait by, by Saddam. Um, and so what happens is that there's a, a broad opposition to the presence of American forces, um, and so, that presence is translated, or that tension, that unease, is translated into attacks against Western targets. Now, there's a second aspect of this that one needs to bear in mind, and that is that, you know, groups like, you know, groups like al-Qaeda and, and people like Osama bin Laden, they didn't see the U.S. as their primary enemy. They never did. Um, and in fact, if you read the translations of Osama bin Laden, or you read, um, as I mean, there's a whole book that, that has translations of his statements or you read uh, Lawrence Wright's The Looming Tower, where he talks about um, Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda and their origins. What you find is their real opposition was to their own home governments. So you find Thakfiris, you find these, these folks who are who are particularly um, attacking um, American targets or European targets. You find them in Egypt, mostly, and you find them in um, coming out of Saudi Arabia. that's because these states are supported by the U.S. So in the beginning, these groups wanted to overthrow their own governments. That was their motive. That's what their public statements were about. It was all about getting rid of their own governments and reforming them to some extent. What they found is that they were unable to overthrow these governments, partly because of military aid from the United States and Europe. So what they felt was that in order to actually overthrow Saudi Arabia or in order to actually overthrow the Egyptian government, first we have to get sever the tie, the links, the aid that they get from the United States and Europe. So they've shifted their focus now on onto the United States and Europe, not because they want to spread Sharia in the United States. It's that they want the U.S. to stop supporting... Uh, militarily, governments that they are opposed to because they feel that after that happens, they can overthrow the government. Now, the the, the really messed up part of this, Scott, is that um, it makes these groups, these Fukuyuri groups, that are attacking U.S. targets and European targets, it makes them, in the eyes of some, although not even close to a majority, some, it makes them represent the the position. Um, that, that that asks for self-representation. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, they are the ones who are defending this idea that we should govern ourselves and we need to get rid of our authoritarian states. And it puts the U.S. in a position where we are the supporters of authoritarianism. So we think of ourselves as supporters of democracy and we think of these groups as, as, as quite radical, and they are, but... Because of our policy, we are seen as supporters of authoritarianism, and they are seen as supporters of self-representation. So the dynamic gets shifted in the public sphere.
0: Yeah, exactly. And... And any fool or moderately informed person who didn't have a vested interest could have told you that before the entire terror war. I hear a bunch of lunatics uh, screaming on a street corner that the end is nigh and we need to kill anybody lives between Canada and Mexico and all this. But why would anybody pay attention to them? And then here comes American bombers setting them on fire from the sky, as George Carlin would say. And all of a sudden, the guy predicting disaster seems right. And the guy, Ooh, me... and, and the only guy saying we ought to defend ourselves from this because the leadership are all bought off. Well, and that's what
1: the is, But let me, you know, focus for a second on Yemen because I think Yemen is, is understudied here. Um, in Yemen, you have a group called the Houthis. They are a type of Shia, Zaydi, Zaydi Shia, who are very rationalist in their the, in their theology. They're very much, you know, into rational in, in engagement. they they are, you know, you, we would find them quite um, familiar. In, in many of their uh, positions. Now, the Houthis are, are the opposition. They're, they're in charge right now, but they're being opposed by the Saudis. Um, and the Saudis are dropping cluster bombs on hospitals, and they're dropping cluster bombs on, um, not just hospitals, but on, on, on lots of civilian installations. And those cluster bombs are being um, purchased from the United States. And just last month, I believe, the U.S. agreed to sell them more cluster bombs because the Saudi coalition had run out of cluster bombs. So here we have a group that potentially um, we could have ties to. They're a Shi'i group. They're, they, you know, they're quite rationalist in their, in their perspective. They are opposed to al-Qaeda in southern Yemen. I mean, these are our natural allies. But instead of us you know, trying to reach out to them in some way and building some sort of connection, we sell you know, cluster bombs to the Saudis who then bomb these, these individuals who are opposed to al-Qaeda, who are opposed to the Qfiri groups. And it drives them into a camp that, that, that doesn't want, to, you know, to, doesn't want to, to reach out to us at all. It alienates them completely. So our policy, especially with respect to Saudi Arabia, it really produces opposition in, 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 in places where we shouldn't even have opposition, where, where we have natural allies on the ground.
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's well, I don't know about being allies with the Houthis, but you know, as we covered on the show with an actual uh, former DoD official yesterday, it was um, you know American-backed Salah's war against the Houthis, four, five, six failed attempts to attack them did nothing but make them stronger. It, to the point where they were able to sack the capital city. And, uh, you know, of course, the whole time that he was accepting all that money and weapons in the name of fighting al-Qaeda. And at the same time, America is fighting al-Qaeda with the robots and still just making more of them by bombing them. So whether we're flying as their air force or whether we're fighting against them with our air force, either way, uh, we're doing nothing but help the bad guys in Yemen this whole time. Those who, who By bad guys, I mean those who are declared sworn loyal to Iman al-Zawahiri still, just like on those who are in Syria.
1: We just make bad policy decisions because we don't understand what's in our best interest and because we're tied so closely to the Saudis. And, you know, the problem is this, that, you know, there are states in the Middle East that we have natural interests, that our interests align with. And if we want stability or if we want democracy or we want people to, to live in, in, in a particular, you know, we want there are certain things we want that we can get in the Middle East if we were to to, to to work with people who have similar interests. But instead, we always work with the Saudis. And the Saudis always work both with us and against us at the same time. And it's just the policy doesn't make any sense.
0: Yep, yeah, absolutely right. All right, well, listen, I'm sorry we're way over time and out of time, but I really appreciate you coming on the show today.
1: No, thanks for having me.
0: All right, y'all, that is Najam Hader. Najam Iftikhar Hader. He is assistant professor of religion at Bernard College of Columbia University. He's the author of Shi'i Islam, An Introduction, and the Origins of the Shia. And we got to go. We'll be right back with Dan McAdams. Well, we already are back with Dan McAdams. Let me see here. Click the button. Yeah, well, you guys know how it goes, man. Uh, If you want to hear the end of that interview, you'll have to go check out the archives later. Because I'd rather have a sloppy outro than interrupt the guy and end the interview early. That's why. But I know, it must sound terrible, right? Going out to break in the middle of an interview like that? Probably in the middle of a word. The music all loud over it, but... Oh, well. That's just the way it goes. Hey, uh, listen. Next up is our friend Dan McAdams. He is the leader, I forgot the exact name of it, director, I guess, of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and and prosperity welcome back to the show dan how are you doing
2: hey scott how are you doing it's great to be with you uh good good uh i appreciate you
0: joining us today and i always love reading you attack the neocons uh because you're good at it and they're horrible and really deserve it uh this one is called neocons at national review stop calling us neocons uh (laughs) uh, quite an apt paraphrase there of this piece, and there 's been a few like this, um I think we talked about this on the show. I certainly was tweeting about this back a few weeks ago. Some lady wrote one a lot like this. This one is Jonah Goldberg himself, uh the editor uh, correct me if i 'm wrong, he is the editor of National Review, right? I believe he is yeah. indeed uh-huh. one and, of the editors and he 's written this piece. The term neocon has run its course <laughs>
2: um,
0: all kinds of stuff uh in this uh pretty brief article Uh, he just goes is is very well organized just from one excuse to the next uh why i think as you put it there's nothing to see here why don't you take us through it
2: well yeah it was i mean i was inspired to write it because uh uh, my old colleague jeff dice at the mises institute now had a little tweet saying hey no no you guys are not going to get away with this one and i thought it'd be kind of funny to expand on what jonah wrote but it's just hilarious, you know, it's like a kid who breaks something and then mom comes in and He says, don't blame me, I didn't do it. Uh, he goes through, as you point out, point after point after point to try to painstakingly tell us how the neocons aren't responsible, they're not interested in foreign policy anyway, it's not their fault the Iraq war went bad, and so on and so on. And by the way, if you insist on calling us that, you're actually just a bunch of antisemites anyway. So that's that's how it ended up. So it was... um it was just a little bit of fun to take that apart and actually a little bit melancholy because, you know, I'll make a confession here. Uh, back in the 90s, you know, I used to read uh, National Review and whether I agreed with everything or not, at least things were solidly put together. They were well argued. There was some erudition. There were some people that had some good educations and great writers. And when you look at something like that today, it's just a shame how far it's fallen.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is more or less a listicle of... All the reasons why leave me alone or something like that. but um, and, and, okay, so we should say for everybody who's not in the know about this, the National Review, of course, their primary sin above all sins is the, their hectoring of America into the Iraq War. I mean, outside of actual power, but in terms of media power, there was no force stronger than the National Review in corralling the entire conservative movement. Um, and in fact, explicitly attacking anyone who dared to call themselves a conservative and oppose a so-called preemptive aggressive invasion of Iraq back in 2002 and 2003.
2: I remember that terrific, uh, was it a, I think it was a cover story where they read all of these people out of the conservative movement, Justin Raimondo, Lou Rockwell, everyone. It was a, it was a classic Stalinist purge that they tried to pull off because they weren't enthusiastic about this Iraq war. And then when it went sour, this is what Jonah wrote in his piece, hey, guys, it's not fair just because we supported it. A lot of other people supported it too. We're just getting the blame because they turned against it before we did or they turned against it and we did it. So. (laughs) <laughs> Which is such a
0: lie. I mean, you could only get away with telling a millennial that or something because he's got to rely on second-hand sources. But for anybody who was around then, the march to war in Iraq was led by the president, the vice president, and the neocon fifth column inside the Defense Department, State Department, and the National Review. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that was they led the parade. They caught everybody else kind of unaware. People looking around shrugging and going, well, okay, I guess we're climbing on board for this. That was the rest of the conservative movement. You know, Dan, I always think, sorry, I'm talking over your interview, but I always think of that one valuable clip, probably, out of all of Fahrenheit 9-11, where there's this kind of low-level state level Republican Party nobody, um, saying, yeah, this is going to be really good for business and and all that. And the way more spun it was that this was what was behind the war. But to me, it couldn't be a clearer example of the Republican rank and file, all the country club guys, all the guys who are members of the local parties and whatever across the country, just trying to figure out what's going on here and how can they get in on it. But the idea that it was their consensus that pushed the thing
2: forward. Come on. Well, as you know, you know uh, Scott, and I'm sure all your listeners know that these plans were—they had them in their back pocket for for years and years before. Then they had it in their back pocket probably since 1991 when Papa Bush didn't go into Baghdad. This was all planned. They were just looking for a, a, an example or an opportunity, which they've already admitted they needed a Pearl Harbor-like event, and they were also looking for a, basically a simpleton in office that they could railroad into doing this. And they—I think they've probably found that. And George W. Bush. I think in Cheney too. Cheney. As you know, he's such a, so a son of
0: a bitch that people assume he's smart, but those things don't necessarily go together.
2: No, ruthless, I think would be more like it. And look, he, his evil spawn still is infiltrated the government. Look at people like Victoria Newland, who used to work for him in the Bush administration. Now she's a big shot covering Europe for the State Department in the Obama administration. How do these people survive? in these positions when supposedly we changed governments and changed foreign policy to the, uh, the Nobel peace prize foreign policy. Yeah. Yeah. It was Hillary who kept her and left her to us. (laughs) And Um, how, how clever are they too with things like this John Hay initiative and others, they set up these, uh, these organizations that help school, uh, the candidates who are otherwise pretty dumb in foreign policy. They don't have a lot of experience. And so they'll say, Hey guys, We've got a whole coterie of experts. We're gonna tell you, we're gonna school you in all this stuff. And, uh, these are the facts. And you look and it's chock full of neocons. Uh, and, you know, they're still considered experts. That's what I find so puzzling, Scott. You know, you and, and Lou Rockwell, Ramondo, everyone, we've, we've got all of these things right over the years. And yet somehow the guys who get it wrong are the experts. Can you imagine? In what other field could you be wrong all the time and still be considered an expert?
0: Yeah. I mean, well, the problem is, is the only people really interested in foreign policy, other than the few of us who are obsessed with opposing it all day every day, the only other people who are interested are people who have a stake in the game. And if they have a quibble, it's that they want to bomb this country, not that one or not that one yet. Not until they yeah. bomb this one first, or whatever. So there's not much of a place for a hearing for people who are saying just knock it off. You
2: know? Yeah, yeah, and, and you know they—that's they, where the big bucks are. You know, we we scramble at the institute for a couple of dollars. I know you all scramble. There's there's just not people writing multi-billion-dollar checks for people opposing war. All the money is in war. All the think tanks are so well funded by 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 Lockheed Martin and all the war the war machine, uh, you know, there's, there's huge profit in it. So that's where they go. Yep.
0: All right. Now. And so as far as, uh, the neocons and what made them special, uh, it was, it was the Iraq war. I mean, they're part of the conservative movement. And as you say, they had a history of reading people out of it. Um, not just, not just right before the Iraq war, but previous to that as well. But, you know, they were the champions of the Iraq War above, you know, even the president or any other faction in the country. And, you know, they were the ones who sold every different point from the bogus weapons and the bogus connections to Osama bin Laden, as well as all the, you know, fantastic democracy and... Um, uh, you know, regional transformation that was going to take place and all these kinds of things. And there's just no denying that it was the neocon think tanks and then, you know, in the publications, the National Review, the Weekly Standard, and, of course, the Washington Post and the Wall Street Journal editorial pages that, that led this march, and they've been identified as such for so long. I could see why, especially with all the current events, why Jonah Goldberg wants out from under this label, but we're not going to let him. <laughs> out from under this label. Dan Adams from the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. More after this. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. Hey i will Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. I swear to God, right now, I'm discussing Star Wars on Twitter with Richard Nixon. What a great life I have. I'm talking with uh, the great Dan McAdams, speaking of greatness. Uh, Dan McAdams and the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity. There's a think tank I can get behind. Ron Paul Institute, and, uh, oh, hit the wrong button there. Um, We're talking about this great thing that he wrote for, uh, I don't know who all, I'm sure the the Ron Paul Institute site, it's also running today as a viewpoint and on the blog at antiwar.com. Neocons at National Review, stop calling us neocons. (laughs) And, um, yeah, well, the guilty don't like being guilty. But, yeah, you're right, it's a funny kind of thing, because everybody who's really good on everything they're bad on and also really good on how bad they are are people who are, even if we were really trying, completely excluded from the discussion. And so who's there to talk about the wars? Every week, week after week, it's just Bill Crystal and all his doppelgangers at National Review, which is the same thing as the Weekly Standard anyway. And um and these same clowns. And it's, you know, the question, what are they going to do? Have Eric Margulies on every Sunday morning on these shows or whatever? They're, they can't do that. Um That's way too far off the narrative. And so psh, it, the very same people who got every single thing wrong are still the very same people in charge of the entire debate. And all of them. I mean, Elliot Abrams and all of them. The, the ones in the government and out. The neocons.
2: Yeah, you know, they still they still run things. Now, um, Scott, you, you mentioned earlier the Iraq War, uh, and I'm sure you could go people could go as far back as they wanted to talk about neocons, but I really like to think about the beginning of neocon power is in the early part of the Reagan administration, where he uh, agreed to allow uh, the neocons around him to form the National Endowment for Democracy to, as all your listeners know, to do in. The open, what the CIA once did in secret, i.e. overthrow governments and regime change. And of course, this was uh, all offered under the guise of the great struggle against the Soviet Union and the Red Menace. We've got to overthrow regimes. We've got to support democracy movements overseas. But what it really was, was, is a sort of a Trotskyite uh, inversion of the Red Menace, you know, uh, the idea that there is an end all uh, there is an exceptional nation that much pushed its ideology on the rest of the world, and it's not surprising that after the Soviet Union is over, uh, the the Ned people, the regime changers, are stronger than ever, and they have sort of become the new USSR. You've got to you've got to abide by our standards of democracy, or we will overthrow you, blow up your country, and kill all your people. And you know, this is the real decay of of the of the that the neocons have caused in the world and has destroyed any moral standing we would have the rest of the world thinks we're a bunch of hypocrites and they're they're right.
0: Yeah. Well, and even according to their idealistic version, yeah, they're the reds with their own domino theory about how once they fix everything here, it's going to spread those positive changes elsewhere as you know, we export world revolution. There's a great clip somewhere. I don't think I have it queued up anywhere but it's from a movie called World War Four that was made by a guy who had helped Bush run for president the first time back in 2000. And he interviewed Michael Ledeen, and he says, well, I don't understand then how come you guys are called conservatives since you're revolutionaries. And Ledeen says, yeah, I know. I don't see what's conservative about it whatsoever. Yeah, I want to turn the entire world upside down. <laughs>
2: That's right. But faster, please, is his uh, motto, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The boiling cauldron, too. Uh-huh. But you know, the other thing that that uh, that Jonah does in his piece, which is, I think, is so tired and overdone, is this whole idea. And he likes to make a joke out of it, but really, that his detractors, those that do not approve of this policy of of neoconservatism, are actually that's just cover for their anti-Semitism. You know, he even uses, I think, an offensive word uh suspiciously Hebraic superhawks, you know. And it seems to me that the that the neoconservatives are more obsessed with this Jewish question than the critics of neoconservatism. You know, the the the, some of the strongest neoconservatives are Catholics or Protestants or, or 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 others, you know, or Muslims, what have you. You know, but there's this obsession. It's I guess it's a way to silence dissent.
0: Well, and so many uh, of their strongest critics are Jews. I mean, look at Jim Loeb
2: and Phil Weiss and a million others like that, too. Absolutely, and the real obsession with Israel, I would argue, probably is not among American Jews, who probably, by and large, are pretty apathetic, but really is among the Christian Zionists and the whole uh, evangelical movement. So is it anti-Semitic to criticize Christian Zionists? You know, it's it's it becomes actually quite humorous.
0: Yeah, well, and it's true that... Jewishness has something to do with the neoconservative movement in the same way it has a lot to do with the libertarian movement, too, which is that a lot of Catholics and Jews, middle class and upper middle class intellectual Catholics and Jews who were not welcome in the old halls of WASP power challenged it. And they're kind of, you know, um, Angela Keaton has uh, taught me a lot about this, how back in the 1970s, the, the libertarian movement and the neocons were kind of, you know, uh, evil twins of each other sort of a thing where they agreed on welfare reform and some of these things and found some common cause. But the the neoconservatives, of course, were obsessed with power and the libertarians were obsessed with destroying it, or at least certainly not in participating in it. So, of course, they got the upper hand. But the fact that the identity of the people involved were Catholics and Jews was you know part of the story it was part of the story of why they hadn't been allowed into power previously but it doesn't mean that oh therefore the pope tells them what to do or uh-huh. it's all about zionism necessarily etc
2: it's like as dr paul says you know this obsession with seeing people as groups rather than as individuals you know right. and it's um, i guess there's some they they seek safety in some of that but it's 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 a pretty intellectually vapid argument i think right. And now, on the other hand, you call yourself a
0: libertarian or you call yourself a neocon and you join up a group in a real way, then that's different. And so for somebody like Jonah Goldberg to deny there's such a thing, when in the same, as you point out in your piece here, he even says, hey, other neocons, stop calling us that. At the same time, he's saying you must be an
2: anti-Semite, McAdams, for calling him that. (laughs) Yeah, I know. And and the, the thing that I thought was particularly hilarious is, Uh, his how he closes it, uh, the right is having a long overdue and valuable argument about how to conduct foreign policy. Keep it going. Just leave neoconservatism out of it. (laughs) And it reminds me of the way the U.S. Government negotiates overseas. Let's sit down and have a diplomatic talk. Okay. Here are the things you have to accept as, as, you know, before we can even sit down. You've got to, you've got to step down from power. You got to do this. You got to do that. It sort of reminds me of, of how the U.S. does it, you know, so we have to accept all the precepts of neoconservatism before we can start a debate.
0: Right. Yeah. And never even bother asking why or why the people promoting any particular policy would do so. Yeah, Even absolutely. though, of course, all of these things are based on the consensus of different interest groups and factions coming together to make them happen. I mean, that's politics. So what are we talking about here?
2: And sadly, you do have to, to to a degree, blame some of the uh, brain-dead Americans who get their news exclusively from uh, the television or the newspapers and – you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, having Eric Margulies on one of the main shows. I think that would be terrific. Sadly, though, Americans have been so attuned to the idea that you have to have a soundbite and something particularly masculine and aggressive that when Eric started giving you some rich history of an area, I'm afraid most Americans would start texting or or God knows what they'd be doing. So we sort of reached a point where people don't even want to know these details. They just want to bomb places.
0: Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, um, And I've been complaining about this. It's worth bringing up on the show. This is the reaction of a lot of regular Joes, serious people, not all Trump voters. This regular people's reaction to the Paris attack was, well, man, maybe we do just have to kill all of them, because apparently this just isn't going to stop until we do that. And they have no room in their imagination to come up with other explanations for what might be the problem other than who they are and or what could be done about it other than just kill them, because on the face of it hey look here we are years into this and the problem is still there and i'm tired of still having the problem and that's what they're left to believe right that's what george Collin would say these are the kinds of conclusions people are left to make from the <laughs> information they're given
2: exactly and remember when we everyone said we have to we have to go to war against isis that the, the worst threat in the history of the world and so many people you know said hey ron paul i'm with you on this this thing but this is an exception we've got to go and take them out and look a year later there's more of them than ever nobody wants to question what in, what inspires them what causes uh, them to swell their ranks uh you know the idea that you can use bombs to solve what were created by bombs in the first place is just so absurd but you know Hopefully people will start listening to your show and others and start waking up a little more.
1: Well, I think they
0: are noticing that it's the Kagans and it's, you know, Bill Crystal and it's the neocons. The very same neocons are the ones for ground troops and re-invasion. And even Cruz is smart enough to directly label them neocons and distance himself from their insanity. So there is progress being made here. And no small part thanks to you, Dan. Appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Scott. Thank you. That's the great Dan McAdams, y'all. Ron Paul Institute.